Hey friends, this is Kate, the creative director of Loam, and today we are speaking with the luminous Mila Prince as part of our special Weaving New World listening series. This year's annual print publication, Weaving New Worlds, explores the threads of decolonizing creativity, climate justice, ecological regeneration, and activism intersect in the work of reimagining a vibrant and just future. With each episode of this series, we want to drop into conversation with one of the many incredible creatives who have made this issue possible. Mila is a writer and folk herbalist who grew up in the boreal forests of eastern Finland. Her work is grounded in ancestral folk medicine and her culture surviving land-based practices, and she's a student as well of her paternal side's Palestinian medicine. In this issue, Mila shares a beautiful contribution, Recipes for Disaster, that braids together a first-person narrative on surviving wildfire with recipes for healing herbal remedies. When COVID was first escalating, we distributed a free digital version of this offering to our community. More than a thousand of you downloaded the guide and your heartfelt response to what Mila has to say was just really awesome. Uh, Mila is a source of inspiration to both Kailea and me, so to have her be a part of this issue is such a gift. So Mila, thank you so much for making the time today. Thank you so much, Kate. And may I just have, it's such an honor and a pleasure to be a part of Loam the Print Issue and to get to be here with you um, because both of you all are also an inspiration to me and the way that you have created community and cared for the community that you have digitally through this COVID crisis and the ongoing uprising is really one of those acts of community care that up, has uplifted my spirits and the um, herbal medicine that you've shared um, has the publication that you all just did has really just been amazing to see and witness um, the nourishing the nervous system specifically um, that you all put out. It's just, yeah, it's been really lovely to see people step up and adapt their practices and their communities care in this time of upheaval. Oh, thank you for saying that. And I know Taylor, who wrote Nourishing is the Nervous mm. System, is so incredible. And it's it feels almost like magic just how timely this offering was and, and how needed <laughs> it, her writing is right now. So I'm really, really makes me happy to hear that you've enjoyed that offering. I've just so. seen it circling around in my community <laughs> and just like, as somebody who's been for years teaching a class called um, plant medicine for troubled times, the idea that having an herbalist present this like very concise booklet for how people can care for the part of our body that is the most responsive in times of crisis just felt like a very holding action. And it came out right at the right time as well. <laughs> the timing Sometimes timing is medicine as well. Mm, oh my gosh, I love that. I need to like write that down. <laughs> so um, there's so much that you touch on in your gorgeous essay that I want to explore today. But the first, and this is what really, you know, when Kylie and I were reading through your work, truly stood out to us, is about shifting from a narrative of self-care to community care. So in your essay, you write, quote, Disasters disrupt the narrative that we're in charge of our own well-being and show us that self-care is simply the first step in what is actually needed. In the case of an emergency, put your own oxygen mask on first so that you can help others. 
What these cascading crises call for is community care. Whether in the season of fires or of elections, our best practice is to take care of each other. It is not our role to be paralyzed by hopelessness, lean on false optimism, or sit in our grief. It is our role as humans in an ecosystem to do our part. What that looks like depends on who we are and where we are. It is part of our work here to figure out how we can be of service to our friends and neighbors, to our bioregions and our non-human relatives. We were born to do that, end quote. Okay, so when I first read this, I just remember underlining and being like, this is it. Like this sentiment is so needed right now. But especially in the face of a mainstream cultural narrative that's been profoundly shaped by the commodification of self-care. So I'd love to learn from you about how can we start to shift the story we're telling around what self-care is, um, you know, what it looks like and how it feels towards a narrative of community care that's more inclusive and intersectional. That's a great question. And far be it from me to say that I am an expert in this in any way. Um, I have had the privilege in my 30s and now 40s to live in a more tight-knit community, one where um, until very recently most people knew each other at least peripherally and there was a lot of mycelial connections and reciprocal relationship. I say until recently because there's a lot of people from specifically, I live in an unceded Coast Salish territory on a small island off the coast of Washington and um, my community is shifting in that there's a lot of folks and I think this is a thing for many, many small communities right now in the time of COVID and um, everything else that's going on, that there's a lot of folks coming in who are sort of maybe thinking that they're just moving into another more remote suburban neighborhood um, and who are not really interested in in knowing um, their neighbors. But I think that the one of the reasons why self-care has been such a buzzword and has been on the rise, like this is actually sort of a circular dynamic in my mind, because the reason why people so glom on to self-care is because there is no community care for us. And it's particularly present in this um, quote, I'm using air quotes, but you can't see them, American culture, where then if one can call America or what we currently call America or the United States rather a nation, the national narrative such as it exists in this very complex country has been one of individual resilience, um, one of individual triumph, one of individual rising to the occasion. And so I think that part of why self-care has become such a thing in this culture is because there are no mechanisms that care for us when we are unable to care for ourselves when we're unable to make ends meet, when we're unable to process our trauma, when we're unable um, to access things that used to be more accessible even to people who didn't necessarily have um, a lot of accumulated wealth. So I feel like part of the way that self, self-care self has infiltrated um especially like sort of the more prosperous strata of of our culture is that there's regardless of like 
how well you're doing outwardly. There still isn't a lot of care and care is a commodity that you buy and that you aspire to and that you apply. So rather than, you know, knowing that if something happens, you are taken care of, you are fully in charge of your own well-being. Um, and there is so much unresolved trauma, so much intergenerational trauma, so much um, I like to think about this time, I always, when I'm trying to make sense of it, which is really hard, and maybe I'm coming across as very inarticulate about it, and I don't have a problem with it, because it is hard, a hard time to articulate. But we also live in this time where all the debts that um, a lot of people's ancestors did not, have not been paying, particularly for the last couple of generations, um, and in America beyond that, are coming due. And so there is a lot of this how do I say it's like dredging up or traveling into the underworld world of like figuring out all these things that we didn't really know and they all feel really heavy and one way to deal with that is to kind of think about self-care as well I'm just going to take care of myself because it's all too much um, and then the other aspect of it is as you mentioned the commodification of it where self-care is a thing that you have to buy it's something that you purchase with money and so I think that really that cycle returning it to community care is just going to the root of the problem which the root of the problem is that there is no community care and so we are told that um as rugged individualists we are just we just have to take care of our own well-being um so what do i mean by community care there are so many different ways to practice community care um but one is definitely seeing and this came out a lot in the time of covid which i loved which is people going, I'm not okay, which means that other people are not okay. So the thing that I do for myself, once I've done it and I have a little bit more resources and strength and energy, how do I distribute that to people around me, to my closest family, to my actual neighbors, people in my town or my neighborhood? And then even beyond that, how do I contribute to those in the greater society who are not directly linked to me um, in ways that I know, but that I know are also linked to me through the mycelial network of we are part of the same organism in a wider sense. Um, does that answer your question in any way, shape or form? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I love so much of, of what you just shared and, um, and particularly um, this reminder that the reason that there's such I think widespread emphasis on self-care is because we don't have these systems in place to provide community care. And I think we're really feeling that right now, what happens when we don't have governments who are designed to, to take care of the people is it's an invitation back into self-sovereignty and creating these independent communities of care. And I really appreciated you speaking to that. And something else that I really want to explore with you is this idea of how to stay embodied in the revolution through the lens of plants. Because I think that's something you do so beautifully, even the way that you show up to social media and the time that you take away from it and how transparent you are about that process, which is one of the reasons I really love, love your newsletters is they're one, they're just beautifully written, but two, they're always a reminder, wait, I don't need to be, you know, my, my everyday doesn't need to be shaped by the screen and how I interact with it. And, and I'm so curious to hear about, about what it means right now to be in your body during a time when increasingly your interactions are shifting into the online realm. 
in this time, it's so interesting because when um, we were working on um, the piece that I got to contribute to the print issue of Loam, you know, all of this was, it wasn't hypothetical, but we weren't in a, the major crisis was that it was the election year, right? <laughs> like, yeah. that was what we were working on at the time, <laughs> which now seems almost, I mean, it, it's a, it's really important. The election is really important, vitally important. So, and this crisis and the uprising have just proven that more, but right now it feels like, oh, we did yeah. not know what was coming. Um, and so I personally feel like in this time of cascading crisis, and I did say that in the piece and now it like feels like the cascades are really happening. Um, really being staying embodied like I, I feel like it was really difficult at first as the COVID-19 crisis was unfolding and with everything with all of us being told that we should just stay indoors and all of us suddenly being so extremely online um, there was this aspect of it and I was actually just talking with my partner about is how you know this crisis has deepened our reliance on devices it's deepened our reliance on them for education for work and the most heartbreakingly of course in connecting with people that we would normally be able to see and touch and talk to face to face and that from the beginning was very disembodying and i remember at the time right before the lockdowns really happened um right as actually I think we were talking about maybe publishing this piece digitally um, because it seemed so pertinent to the moment. I remember writing something online specifically about just how there are certain constants, about how there's always the moon, how there are still plants, like spring was still happening in the global north, like how it, regardless of what was happening in the human world, like these truths still were real, like the earth was still moving towards um, the season of growth and the season of blooming. And and I remember getting a huge response to that because people do feel disembodied. When you're trapped in, when one is trapped inside one's house, um, following the 24-hour news cycle, following everything from a distance and being separated from the physical world of, of their daily lives, even if that physical world is just going to a workplace, taking a child to school, going to the grocery store. When all of that falls away, it is really hard to stay embodied. And also at the same time, for me at least, the uprising that has been happening since, um, I think it's May 24th time, um, the COVID time dilation is very real. Just if anybody is feeling it, I just want to validate your feeling. COVID time dilation is real. <laughs> time has been moving differently in the last few months. Um, at first, it was very slow. Then it became very fast. And I think people have different experiences where you can have two people in a room who now have a very markedly different experience of how time moves. So um, that's just something to take note of in our bodies. But really having... Um, the uprising that has happened since the murder of George Floyd and has catalyzed around um, the murders of black folks over this period of time and over really just the entire history of this country and how that has been because of the fact that people had more time and that people were so connected 
to social media, to the news cycle, and how that has manifested into this event, this like ongoing revolution truly, that for me at least has been so uplifting. Um, it has felt really important to take the community care and take the care that we need to do for ourselves as well, not the self-care of like buying expensive candles, but the self-care of listening to our bodies and being embodied and being present in the physical world. Um, that revolution has really taken that, um, taken it quite literally, where people see something happening online and they react to it with action. They react to it in their bodies and they feel the reaction in their bodies and they feel like they need to metabolize it and they need to integrate information and they need to change. And so, and specifically like those of us who are white or white presenting, like that has been really clear, like we do need to change. We need to make changes. We need to learn something quickly and, and efficiently and we need to put it into action. And so the medicine of embodiment feels more potent in this time than I remember it in any of the years of that I've lived through, um, no matter how intense things were, where in order to feel like we are truly connected and we are here to do the work that we need to do, I also think that we all need to connect to why it is that it's important work. And for me, that's always been, you know, connecting to the living earth and realizing that I'm a very small and very insignificant part of the living world. And at the same time that I'm just as important as any other small insignificant part of the living world. And I really feel like in this time of not just unwellness because of COVID, not just an actual pandemic, like raging through our world and in this country in particular, the inadequate response to it and the continued placement of capitalism ahead of people's needs but also in just the fact that people are actually going out there and putting their bodies in harm's way in order to change something in the world it feels that taking care of these bodies and making sure that these bodies are aware of what is happening to them and integrating the physical the emotional and spiritual into one body is really key and that what that looks like is different for everybody my experience has always been going to the plants and I continue to feel like there is something about connecting with the non-human world that can bring the, us back into ourselves when the human world is spinning so quickly and in so many areas so out of control. And so when that comes up for me personally, I try to remember that I need to go put my body into the body of the earth. So I need to go to a plant. I need to go sit under a tree. I need to go put my body into a body of water. And, and these are actually practices that come really easily to most people once they start tuning into them, because these are practices that our ancestors have had since the beginning of humanity. So our bodies remember them, even if our conscious minds don't. And when I say body of water, like I have the privilege of living in the country. I live on an island, so I live close to water. But when I didn't, when I lived in a huge multi-million person city I would take a shower every morning and while it may not sound as magical or may not look as Instagram worthy as going to a scenic um, cove in the ocean taking a shower is still moving through the same body of water and just as like drinking a cup of mint tea from the grocery store or from the 
packaged tea aisle is not as inspirational or Instagram worthy as harvesting wild plants or growing one's own garden. That's still an action in that same way. And, you know, one of the beautiful things about cities is that they actually have very diverse miniature biomes. They have people's yards, they have parks that have huge old trees. They are often bordered by waterways or or forests. And so, again, there is this ability to go to those places. And some of the most profound nature experiences and most grounding ones I've had, I've actually had in city spaces where you really get to observe the resilience of plants and what they can teach to us about being resilient. Um, Every herbalist often will speak of the dandelion poking through the (laughs) cracks in the pavement. But just looking at any kind of plants or animals who have adapted to those surroundings and who thrive can really be connecting and uplifting for us. Did that answer that question? No. Did I just trample on? It did. And it brought up so many other like beautiful (laughs) questions and thoughts to reflect on. Um, So something that's, you know, when Kyle and I are kind of envisioning each issue, one of our hopes is to really show that there are a lot of different ways to show up in service and that there are many ways to embody activism. And I think one of the reasons your work resonates so deeply is it's this really powerful and potent example of how herbalism can be a kind of activism. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more to that and how your work with herbs is activism and particularly in relationship to this really momentous moment we're in when it feels like the ground we're standing on is constantly shifting. So the notion of herbalism as activism, to me at least, like there's no separation between those two things. I was raised by somebody who was a you know a political activist in the international solidarity movement and then became a union organizer. And so I've like always been taught that old moray of like the personal is the political. And what's political about herbalism in particular, or what's activist about herbalism, is like people sometimes say like, oh, plants aren't political, but plants are intertwined with life. And right now our lives are very political in this, you know, early 21st century, like late capitalism, hopefully like end of white supremacy and colonialism time, like our lives are political and therefore plant medicine is political. And one of the things that I really struggled with, with activism, so I grew up in this like very political climate in and in this climate especially like my mother kind of taught me like you upset with something you call city hall you go protest um you know how they say you can't (laughs) fight city hall my mom can fight city hall and my mom can beat city hall and like growing up watching somebody be like I'm just one person and that this is a very small thing but I will change it and I don't care what it takes I have this okay I'm just gonna like diverge and tell you this great story about my mom which is that we lived in government housing. That's not that uncommon in Finland, but like she was a single parent and we happened to live in really old ass government housing. Like we didn't have hot running water. We had an outhouse and like it was heated with wood um, and they wanted to tear it down, but they were, weren't going to give, the city wasn't going to give the people who lived in my building new government housing. And my mom was like, that's unacceptable. Like that's a, like, there's an old lady and two families and like me and I'm, I'm not going to accept that. And so she started going to the housing commissioner. I don't really know what the title was, their office and calling and writing to newspapers in my small town. 
And I have this memory of going to City Hall with her and like there's a waiting area and a secretary. <laughs> and my mom's like, okay, <laughs> you sit here and read your book. I'm going to go do some stuff. And the secretary calls the guy, I'm guessing the housing commissioner, and, and she's like, Mrs. Kotima, which my mom is not married. She's like, Mrs. Kotima is here. And the guy goes, don't let her in. Just tell her she can have whatever she wants. And I remember oh gosh, just being amazing. like, this guy's scared of my mom. Cool. <laughs> so, like, uh, the idea that everything is political and how that, or that if you're an activist. So, like, one of the things that I really have struggled with is, like, as an activist, you kind of have to find your lane. Because there, especially now, there are so many things. And I'm not saying you can't care about everything because everything is interconnected. All these things are interconnected in like a deep level. Um, but that we can't possibly, like not all of us are going to be good at public speaking. Not all of us are going to be able to go out and protest. Not all of us are good at political organizing. So whatever you're good at becomes the tool that you use and the tool that you work with and the and you're part of weaving this web of solidarity and weaving this web of revolution and weaving this web of reimagining a more holistic, more nutritive, more equitable world. Um, and so for me, I finally figure out like that's plants. And even though my plant practice is private in that it is my practice, it's what I do to keep myself healthy and to keep myself grounded and to keep myself balanced. Um, and it's a practice that I share with others. It's also part of my activism. And, you know, herbalism as activism truly in a system where we don't have access, many people don't have access to healthcare. Many people don't have access to being well. Many people don't have access to therapy, to mental health, to, so many facets of well-being and being taken care of. Herbalism really can serve this role of, of supporting in this underground way uh, because it is accessible. And anybody who's trying to make it not political, not activism, not accessible is not really seeing, in my opinion, what this practice is really about. And I gotta also say, like, again, I'm not an expert. Like, I'm I'm not just a folk herbalist. I'm what you would call a village herbalist. I don't have... I'm using those air quotes again, traditional Western herbalism training. I'm not a clinical herbalist. Um, I'm just somebody in a small community who grows plants and makes plant, plant medicine and shares plant medicine. Um, and I make my living from plant medicine. But even when I didn't make my living from plant medicine, it was this huge part of my life. And a big part of plant medicine is giving it away. Like, I do not know anybody who. I'm sure there are people, but I do not know anybody who didn't start practice their practice by just making something for themselves and their family and then sharing it with a wider and wider circle. And even as they're learning, even folks who go to herb school, like that's kind of how you start out. And that's always part of things. So for me, one, making plant medicine and sharing it with folks who are struggling with emotional stuff, with mental health stuff, with physical stuff, and don't have as much access as they need to, um, to medical care services, especially again in this country where we just do not have that. I don't have that. Um, that is radical to me. But then also we are all needing to find ways to connect to the living world, to connect to the earth. And plant medicine is not just a way that is accessible for that, 
it's a way that we're all actually already doing it. And this is my favorite thing to point out in classes, which is raise your hand if you've ever drunk coffee or tea or peppermint tea or any herbal tea. Um, raise your hand if you use culinary spices. Then you already have a connection to plants. You already have a practice of plant medicine. Um, it's just hidden in these places that aren't expert, that aren't, you know, in this realm of like, oh, I went to herb school and I know about the constituent value and I know about the um, interactions that, you know, the that the plants have in your body. It's just on this folk level of like, this is what my grandma did. This is what this traditional recipe is. This is what actually with coffee, like this is what our culture does with this plant. And don't get me started on how we misuse powerful plants. Coffee is one of those um, because our culture is so oriented towards haste. But just kind of noticing that plants are an integral part of our lives. They make the air that we breathe. They they are part of every facet of our lives. And connecting with them is a political act, is activism, like of recognizing in solidarity that they are beings and that they have medicine, but they also have their own agenda and they have a right to the things that we also have right to, which is being able to uh, be nourished and have space and grow and and not be threatened by um, forces outside of our control. Does that make sense? Yes, that really does. And and yeah, feels so so important of an idea to come home to right now. And I will also say that like in just practical terms of herbalism is activism, the community that I saw react the quickest to COVID and then to the uprising. And this is just my bubble, I'm sure. But I am part of like a few communities, you know. And one of the things that I saw is like two days later, three days later, like as news is breaking, all these herbalists in my community are just stepping up and like already have mutual aid programs in place, already know somebody who knows somebody who is like in the area and could use this or that, are already like tapping into their knowledge and know-how of of plants to help support folks in tough times. And, and that's something that, you know, not every community has, but in the herbal community, there is this intrinsic understanding um, because the herbal community in so many ways in this country too is in the margins. Like it's this semi-legal way of, of, of working and, and, you know, it's not known to everybody, even though it should be because it's part of everybody's heritage. But there is there is a strong core of activism and also just a strong core of relationships. Um, and that's also something that really came up since May. It's just, you know, a lot of us have been sending herbal medicine across the country to folks who are protesting and just people who need it and so on and so forth. And seeing like the connections and the relationships that people have built really grow stronger and enable them to make this part of their activism in that they were like, oh, I know this person who's in this city who knows these people who are running this mutual aid program and so I'm just going to mail them a package of something. And it's this like beautiful, like one of the things to know in the Anthropocene in this era that we live through is that we, the main thing to cultivate is relationship. Mm. That Like one of the things that comes up for me a lot is like the future is relational. Like we will not be able to get through this without each other. And so in the times in between, 
which I don't know if those times are ever coming back, but I vaguely remember them from a couple months ago, <laughs> where, where the crises were not so acute. They're, they're there. That's why we're dealing with, with all of this. Like All of it is coming to the surface. But even in the times of rest, like we still cultivate those relationships and and you know um, draw inspiration and ideas and nourishment and care from each other, so that then in the times when things become acute, we can step in and support each other. This idea of the future is relational just feels like the thesis statement <laughs> for this moment. I love that so so much. Mila, I want to thank you again for making the time to connect today, um, as well as for, you know, what you contributed to Weaving New Worlds. I'm so excited for people to get to hold, um, to hold this publication in their hands and particularly to hear how your herbal remedies um, will, will inspire relation, inspire thoughtfulness, inspire revolution in their own lives because yeah your essay and the and the recipes that you share just such needed nourishment right now thank you so much for continuing to weave those new worlds um with everyone in that community and in your ex and the expansion of that community i really think that that title weaving new worlds is kind of also a thesis statement of this time in that a new world isn't just going to be born like our reality is not just going to change it will be a gradual build-up which is what weaving is where row by row by row you create a pattern mm. and so thank you for letting me be like one tiny thread in in that weaving <laughs> that we're all making together and it is going to be messy and it's going to be tangled but I think the end result is going to be really beautiful Mm, I hope so too. And I also uh, want to thank Isaac Silk for editing our podcast, Isaac and Faith Harding for our beautiful intro music. To you all, as always, for listening and please stay tuned. We um, are having an exciting shift at Lone Listen in the next month. We're going to be having a new host. Um, so yeah we're really excited about what's to come and really grateful to be in community with you all right now and be well bye